The following is a presentation from the MJ Cast, the internet's premier podcast on all things Michael Jackson. I'm a Black American. I am proud of who I am. Together, we can make a change in the world. I like to take sounds and put them on the microscope. There's a driving bass. You become the bass. Let the music write itself. I don't sing it if I don't mean it. <laughs> Welcome to the MJ Cast, your source of news, discussion, and interviews on the King of Pop. Hello and welcome to the MJ Cast. I'm your host, Jamin Bull, and today we are super excited to be here to talk about a brand new documentary on Michael Jackson's art on Bruce Widian on the Thriller album. We can't wait to dig into this one. This is going to be great. It's been a long time coming, this documentary, Marcos Kubota's Sonic Fantasy, which is now here, premiering at film festivals in different places, and some fans have been lucky enough to see it. We certainly have been lucky enough to see it, and we're going to talk all about it very, very shortly. Uh, Look, we've got a a number of people here today ready to talk to Marcos. We'll go through each of them one by one to introduce Elise. It's not often that you and I are on episodes of the MJ cast together. How are you? I know. It's so exciting. It's especially been a while with our baby lives bouncing back and forth. So I'm really excited to be here and thrilled to be on my first episode of this season. So um, yeah, I can't wait to be chatting about this great film. Here we go. This is it. And uh, baby Bryn's had a bit of a uh, flu thing going on in the last few oh, days. Oh, huh? we call it the daycare plague. I'm sure other parents will understand. It's been a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> Same thing going on over here in uh, in Studio Brisbane. <laughs> but anyway, all right. So who else have we got here? Charlie Carter, uh, the MJ Cast audio producer. How are you going, buddy? Not too foul. Thank you very much. How are you all doing? Good, good. Excited. Ready to go. Ready to go. And uh, thanks again for all the hard work you've done this season so far. Our last episode, the the John Barnes tribute episode, has really got some incredible reception uh, around the world. So thanks for all your hard work on that one. Oh, not a problem. What a joy that episode was to listen to. Absolutely. We're also here with John Cameron of JC's Musicology. You're no stranger to the MJ cast these days, and we're certainly excited to have you back to talk about Sonic Fantasy. How are you doing, John? Oh, it's too early to tell, but <laughs> I'm excited to be back, and what, a, what an episode to be back on. Absolutely. Much appreciated, as always. All good. Okay, and last but not least, we are here with the director of Sonic Fantasy, what a documentary. We've been waiting a long time to speak with you, Marcos. You are obviously an award-winning documentary filmmaker, having made many documentaries, including uh, a great, great Star Wars documentary, I Am Your Father, on David Prowse. Just excellent work. And I know that, you know, you have shared online some photos and some pretty cool things about your time also appreciating Michael Jackson years ago. We can't wait to dig into some of these questions. And uh, Sonic Fantasy, we've all had a chance to see it now uh, here at the MJ Cast. And man, just some incredible, incredible stuff. So welcome to the MJ Cast. Hello, MJ Cast. Um, it's an honor to be here with you. Uh, thank you. 
So Marcos, it really is so exciting to have you here. Now we have had you on the show before. You were on our very important episode about leaving Neverland, which has been, you know, crucial episode that actually brought a lot of new listeners to the show and was also a discussion where we got to talk about that film before it had really even had a wide release. So thank you again so much for being part of that chat. Thrilled to have you back now to talk about your life and work. So with our guests, when we do these deep dive interviews, we really like to go all the way back to the beginning. So can you tell us a little bit about your early life as a NJ fan and film fan and all that good stuff? We'd love to start there. Thank you very much. First of all, excuse my English. I'm from Spain. I'll try my best. Okay. But yeah, I'm I'm a film fan since I was five years old. I was born in in Mallorca. Mallorca is an island in the Mediterranean Sea in Spain. And since I was five, six, I watched a film called Back to the Future. From that day, I was totally blown away. I wanted to make films. At the same time, my sister was five, six years old. She was a Michael Jackson fan. She had the Thriller album uh, all day through at home. I did not become a fan, but but it was more, you know, I liked Michael. And if you ask me at, at that time who was my favorite artist, I always say Michael Jackson. And that went till bad era, all the bad things, dangerous. And, and I guess in history, that's when I started feeling a little bit different about Michael. It was like, wow, this is much more than my favorite artist. This is something else. I think it was when I watched They Don't Care About Us video or when I heard Scream, I don't remember. It was definitely around that era that I just became a fan. So I start, you know, I had my Claudia Schiffer posters on the wall. So they went down and my my Michael Jackson's posters went up. And 1999, that was my first time on Michael Jackson and Friends. I went to Munich, Germany and watched my first Michael Jackson concert. And from that day on till 2009, um, I've been, you know, a Michael Jackson follower. At the same time, I was studying to make films. And a year after Michael passed away, I made my first film. 2010 was the release of my first film, I think 2010 or 2011. And then from that day till today, I'm still working on on the film business and and doing films. Fantastic. What is it about the documentary genre or format that draws you to it? And why do you make documentaries? I just don't make documentaries. When I start a film, I just want to make a film. I don't care if it's an action film or horror movie or... I've done both. I've done documentaries and and regular films. So it depends on on the time of my life. I just um, I like to tell real stories and and I like to do tell real stories about people that are on the background. And I'll try to explain myself. I try to tell stories about people that are on that they are in the background of big stories. For example, I did the "I Am Your Father" movie, and I told the story about this guy called David Prowse that no one knows him. Well, some people know him, obviously, but the general public doesn't know who he is. And he was Darth Vader in in Star Wars. And, you know, that's huge. So this is like the typical stories I like to tell. I like to discover people that they were involved in huge stories, but people don't know about them. 
Marcos, I'd like to know a little bit more about how you became a filmmaker. You know, there was once a time where you'd, you'd never made a movie before. Mm-hmm. How did you get from from zero to making feature-length documentaries? How did you raise the capital to buy these kind of film equipment and get a crew and, and all of that sort of thing? I was studying film studies in Madrid. It was around 2005. It was around the trial era. I used to fly to Santa Barbara, to Santa Maria for the trial, and then fly back to study film studies at, at Madrid in Spain. When I finished university and I finished, I did a film master. I didn't have a film. on. I was quite naive. I didn't know how the industry worked. So the thing is, I made a script with some friend of mine. Uh, we did a, a comedy. It was a feature film, a script. It was, it was not a documentary. It was a you know film with actors. Yeah. And it was like a big budget film. But we had no idea. I was like 25, 26. Uh, I thought, okay, I'm going to write this and see what happens. So I wrote that script and I went to the biggest production company in Europe. It's called Mediaset. They make huge films. So I just called them and said, hi, I'm a guy. I write scripts. I've done my first script and I have done various short films, but they are university short films, student short films, nothing serious. I want to show you my script. And they said, okay, just send me the script. I sent the script. I had no idea what was going to happen. The next thing is they called me like two weeks later. They actually read the script and they actually liked it. So this is like the biggest production company in Europe. They are serious business. So they call me for a meeting. I go there and I have a chat with a, with a big boss and, and he says, okay, if I pay you this movie, um, um, are you going to do it good? Are you going to, you're not going to fail, right? And I, I was like super confident. I was, no, 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 I'm going to make it. It's going to be great. I didn't know anything about filmmaking. I thought I knew, but I didn't know anything about filmmaking. It was, yeah, I only had short films. They give me the budget for make the movie. It's like close to 4 million euros for my first movie. And that's a huge, a lot of money. Remember, I just... Before that, I just did like student short films, horrible student short films. I make this film, and I remember it was funny because I had this, uh, they they didn't trust me 100%. They thought I was, okay, he's going to make it, but he's going to fail somewhere. So we will probably have to replace him with another director. So I had this guy watching every move I did, every step I did while I was doing my film. That was the year 2010, one year after Michael passed away. I did the film and it was good and it worked. I don't know how, but it worked. And the film actually was a big success in Spain. It was one of the most viewed films in cinemas at Spain, uh, most ticket sales. And actually it won a a huge prize. We've got a, a very important film festival here in Spain called Festival de Malaga. It's very important. And the film got the award of the best film. So it was a big push-up for me. And that was my beginning. And um, from that day, when I won that award and the film was big here in Spain, it was, I don't want to say the word easy because it's never been easy, but now I have the confidence from people that now I'm going to do a good job. I'm, I'm the guy from Amigos. Amigos, it's it's called France, my, my first film. It's, I'm the guy from France. So they know the film was great. So if I'm going to do another project, it's going to be. So then I did my first 
documentary film that was I Am Your Father. And that was a big success here also. I was It was a Spanish Academy Award nominee, and it was the biggest Spanish documentary ever done to be seen all around the world. It was Netflix bought it, bought the rights of the film for all around the world, actually. So it was another big success. It was like two successes in a row. And I was lucky enough to be part of that and, and create those films. And um, from there on, I, I've just, you know, I'm, I'm just on the wave. So it's hard work. And thanks to my crew, they, they do the big job. I'm just directing, but, but I've got established crew and, and, and that's what I do for a living, and, and I'm, I'm enjoying every second of it. That's great. And that obviously leads us right through to your film, Sonic Fantasy, which has just come out and has uh, a huge narrative arc all around Bruce Wadeen, the incredible, famous engineer that was there with Michael during most of his uh, solo projects. And we'll, we'll definitely talk about that shortly. Marcos, where did the idea come from for this documentary? How did it evolve well, when I started my career, basically when I started to have success here in Spain and start being a, a solid director, at least here in, in my country, that idea of making a Michael Jackson-related movie was always in my head because I was a fan. I'm still a Michael Jackson fan, so now I had the power to make movies. So there was always this in my brain. One day I was with two good friends of mine, Michael Jackson fans. They are called Tony and Laura. They are the guys behind the MJ Hideout Forum. I told them, okay, so I have to do a Michael Jackson documentary. It has to be a story that the general public doesn't know. Suddenly, Bruce Udine came into my mind. And I said, everyone knows Michael Jackson. Everyone knows Quincy Jones. Who knows who's Bruce Udine? Obviously, the Michael Jackson fans know them, but I try to make documentaries not only for Michael Jackson fans, but for everyone, so everyone can watch. You don't have to be a Michael Jackson fan. No one knows Bruce Udine if you're not in the music industry, and that's 99% of the world population. So I decided that I wanted to do a documentary about Bruce Udine. I told them, and they said, wow, this is great. We want to help you. A couple of months later, so I went to Lille, France, because Bryce Nijar organized MJ Music Day. Brad Baxter was going to be there. Michael Prince was going to be there. So suddenly, out of the blue, this man called Gareth Maynard comes out and says that he has done a Bruce Houdin documentary. It's called The Man Behind the Sound. So I said, okay, that's the thing I wanted to do. Already it's done. Someone else has done it. So I have to forget this idea. He puts a documentary and it's a great documentary, but it's a documentary he's done by himself. He's a professional. He's a great guy. I love him, but he did it by himself. And the documentary is a 50 minutes documentary. It's okay. I like it, but it works, you know, from the beginning of Bruce till the last albums he did with Michael Invincible. So I thought there was like too much information in for 50 minutes. And the documentary was okay, but it wasn't perfect. So I'm very fortunate enough to have a whole crew behind me. I've got budget, I've got people, I've got production companies, I've got Netflix behind me, you know, I've got a lot of people behind me. So Gareth doesn't. When the film finished, I reached up to Gareth 
I introduced myself and I said, Gareth, I loved your film and I want to do the same thing, but I want to do it bigger. And I, I don't want to tell the whole story. I just want to tell a bit of story. For example, I think that in Gareth documentary, the thriller album is just like 10 minutes part of the documentary. So I said, I want to focus on the thriller part. I want to tell more. I want to explore that part. Why thriller? When you see Bruce Houdin talking about thriller, he's totally in love with that album. I, I already knew. I read his, his books. It's his favorite album. Thriller is his favorite song. And those were the best days of his life. So I wanted to show that part of Bruce's life. Gareth was very kind enough to introduce me to Bruce. And he said to me, okay, I did this documentary like seven years ago and nothing has happened with it. So maybe you can redo it, do something else. And so at the beginning, I was going to use some of Gareth's material. But at the end, because he did it with a type of camera that is not 4K, that's like standard that we need now for Netflix or any other platforms. So I redid it again. I rewrote it again. Uh, I gave another focus of the documentary. I just made it mine, made it not just mine, but my crew, my team. And Gareth was on the boat with us. He was his co-producer of the film. So that's how we started. And thanks to Gareth, because Gareth had all the contacts. Gareth knew everyone. He was friend with Bruce. He introduced me to Bruce. And, and from then on, we started making the documentary. The film is immaculately structured, Marcos. The film opens with the infamous Disco Sucks record burning. And I was curious as to whether there were other prologues or concepts that you'd considered when writing it. I did make a script before starting shooting, but it's true that when you're making a documentary, every day, every interview you make, things change and suddenly you realize and you know things that you didn't know the day before. I didn't have the concept of the disco sucks era starting the documentary, but I did realize that when Thriller was being made, it was not a very good time for the industry. So I thought it would be a good idea to just establish at the moment we were at that point of time so the people can understand the difficulty and the greatness of the work that those guys did on the studio. I don't remember when it came, but I think it was like some point Well, while I was editing the movie, suddenly it just popped into my mind and I said, okay, we have to start with this. We have to explain this. So that was the idea where it came from. I think the Disco Sucks framework is really smart and, and it's always just so interesting. I mean, most people know about the Disco Sucks era, but to see that footage that you open with is always just mind-blowing. It's really crazy that that even happened. And so I, I do love that you started that way. Now, Marcos, I do want to ask you about just kind of this idea of like thinking about Thriller itself and the whole era, including kind of disco sex and everything else that Thriller existed in. It's such a massively complex time period in Michael's life. So going into this project, were you daunted by this feeling of really needing to do this epic album justice? Back again, um, I'm a Michael Jackson fan, but I'm also a filmmaker. And when I do a film, I try the film not just for the fans or for me. I try to make the films from everyone. When I did I Am Your Father, that's a Star Wars documentary. But I always said that when we started that film, I always said, 
this documentary has to be for everyone, not just for Star Wars fan. So the thing is, everyone knows Star Wars. So that was easy because... So what, with Michael's life, when I decided I wanted to do a documentary uh, about Bruce Sudin and, and his work with Michael, my favorite album is not even Thriller. My favorite album is Dangerous, for example. And I'd love to see a documentary about Bruce making Dangerous. But again, that's from a fan point of view. I know everyone in the world, basically everyone knows Thriller. So Thriller is the biggest selling album in history. It's not an Eagles album. It's not Madonna. It's not Dangerous by Michael Jackson. It's Thriller. There's only one and there's, it's just going to say, stay like this forever. So I thought that, you know, no one had done it before. And that was Bruce Sudin's favorite album. And it was, a, as you said, a very complex time, not just for Michael, but for, you know, the world. Um, it was not just the disco sucks period. It was the video games period. The music industry was in his in his worst moment ever. So I thought he had all the ingredients to be a great story. And basically it was, it was thriller. You know, Bruce Udine, the main character of my film, he worked on the biggest selling album ever. So I thought, you know, the general public is going to understand it because everyone has thriller in home. Maybe not dangerous, maybe not history, but thriller, yes, everyone has thriller. So that's why I decided to make it about thriller. And Marcos, I do want to comment on what you just mentioned about looking at the video game industry as well. I found that so interesting because I had never, there was some some information in there about how the video game industry was doing in that same era that I was not aware of. And I found it so fascinating to see how the music industry and video game industry were kind of bouncing back and forth. So I love that you, you brought that into the story as well. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah. Thanks. The title Sonic Fantasy is very evocative. It's a very clever title. Is that something that you came up with beforehand or was it something that was said by multiple different people in the documentary and you thought that's a great title to run with? Yeah, that's something I choose before starting writing the script. I read all the books about Bruce Sudin there were. He has three books and I read them, the three of them. And somewhere in one of those books, I read Sonic Fantasy. And just the second when I read that, I said, okay, this is, it just came into my mind and said, okay, this is the title of, of the film. Yeah. So from the first second, Actually, actually, the first title of the film was going to be called The Next Project Ahead because that's what they called Thriller when they were in the studio. They called it The Next Project Ahead. They didn't call it Thriller, obviously. They called it The Next Project Ahead. So that was the first title. But in my early stages of the film, I read Sonic Fantasy for the first time. I didn't read it in any other place. It was just in a random page in a random book and he talked about Sonic Fantasy. So I decided I want to explore what Sonic Fantasy was. I did my first interview that my first interview was with Bruce Houdin. He asked me, what's the documentary going to be called? And I said, Sonic Fantasy. And he smiled and he's, he was like, oh, I love it. I love it. It means so much for me. I was, okay, so I made the right choice. And this is basically a documentary about Bruce Houdin. So it was very important for me to to have his approval on the title. 
And that's where they came from. And and so every time I interviewed someone for the film, I did ask for Sonic Fantasy. And most of the people, they knew what it was. One of my ideas for the movie is to create this title that no one knows what it is. But you, at, at some point in the film, you watching the film, you get it. You, you go like, oh, okay, now I know why it's called Sonic Fantasy. Yeah, I love it. Such a great title. Such a great title. There seems to be an intentional creative decision within the film or, or the process in making the film to focus mainly on the music of Thriller. Things like the short films, the Victory Tour, Michael's appearances during the time period, maybe except for the Grammys, the Pepsi Burn, all of these things that happened around that era are kind of, you know, not, not spoken about. Even though you had collaborators that were involved in some of these projects, like, for example, Vincent Patterson, who worked on Beat It and Thriller, why did you make the decision to, to narrow down right in on the music? I wanted to take the uh, audience, I wanted to take the spectator in a journey uh, from the first day they started recording the album to the day the album was released. Yes, of course, I could talk about, you know, a thriller video, of course, uh, it's history about Beat It, about, you know, everything that surrounded Michael, uh, the thriller era. But I thought, I felt when I was writing the script and I felt when I was actually shooting the movie that the movie had to finish when the thriller album was out, when the studio work was completed everyone knows the rest of the story you know everyone knows what happened after that michael jackson became the biggest star to walk this planet that's obvious and i would need like 10 more hours to explain that story and i only had an hour and a half and basically that was bruce sudin's story i always try to repeat that this is a documentary about bruce sudin and his work on Thriller. So Bruce was not involved in any of the Michael mania that happened later. I always uh, knew that the film finished when the recording was finished. You uh, briefly touched on earlier about your first meeting with Bruce. What was that like? And overall, how much material were you able to film with him? The first time I met Bruce, it was actually the shooting day that I did his interview. So my first day with Bruce was at his home in uh, Ocala in Florida. And we did the interview. It was like a five hours interview, six hours interview. And then I had like a two more couple of hours of shooting him at his home and shooting, you know, inside his house, inside his studio. It was great. He was he was very passionate about the movie. He was very passionate about Michael. He was very passionate about what we were doing and and he was a great guy I, I just met him that day and it seemed like we were like friends for a while and and you know we had a great fun and B his wife made us cookies for the crew and myself and he was thrilled to talk about that story about not just thriller but anything to do with with Michael he was he was he was totally in love with the, with the man and as me, but you know, he was like one of his best friends. So yeah, I met him for the first time and, and we didn't actually have like a previous meeting. Uh, we did send emails back and forth before, 
to arrange everything, but we didn't have like a meeting. The first day we I met the guy, it was the first interview I did. That's lovely to hear. Overall, how much interview footage were you able to film, not just with Bruce, but all of the participants? And is there the potential for more of that to be released in the future? It was at the end of the journey, because it was like a, a year and a half journey back and forward. I went from Spain to the United States and came back and I visited several times the U.S. The day I started editing the interviews, I had a timeline on my computer and it was 52 hours. So I have 52 hours of interviews of everyone that are in the film. The thing is, I don't know if that material is going to come out because every time you do um, an interview, they sign a contract. And on that contract, it says that the material that I've recorded is just for the Sonic Fantasy movie. So if it's not on the final edit on the movie, or I could do another edition, like in a couple of years, well, you know, on the 10th anniversary or the fifth anniversary, and I could like add more. Or if a Blu-ray comes out, I can do some extra material and I could put some of that, that stuff. But there's no plan for that at the moment. Marcos, just to jump in to follow up on that for a moment, I certainly hope that B will agree to releasing some additional material in the future because it is clear from the interview snippets we get of Bruce that you guys clicked right away. He really wants to tell these stories so much. And he just, there's a warmth um, and an intimacy in all of the interview footage with him. So as fans, I really hope we do have the opportunity to see more of that in the future. Fingers crossed. Oh, yes. Uh, yes. Um, uh, re- think think about this way. I'm, I'm in the moment that Sonic Fantasy has been like three or four years of my life, my, my head is going to explode. There's much <laughs> to Sonic Fantasy in my mind. And I just want to walk in another project. I'm actually working on another movie right now. And I want to like step a little bit far away from Sonic Fantasy for a couple of times. But I've got that material and it's great. There's other great stories, not just about Michael, but about Bruce, about the team working on the studio. And I totally know myself. So I know as a fan that in a couple of years, I'm going to get that hard drive. I'm going to plug it into the computer. I'm going to start watching interviews and I'm going to find the way to bring those stories to everyone. They are amazing. You know, it's been so difficult for me uh, on the edition to take out stories. I knew I wanted to do a movie an hour and a half. I couldn't, I didn't want to go more, but the first edit I had, it was like three hours. The first cut, it was like three hours and it can't get smaller because it's all the material here. It's great. I had to take some amazing stories out, but yes, me as a fan, they'll they'll probably come out. I, I don't know how, I don't know the way I need to talk to everyone again and we'll have to rearrange the contracts and maybe they let me to, I don't know, just leave them on YouTube for free. I don't want to make business with that. I just want the stories to come out. So yeah, if you ask me in two years, I will be probably working on that. Marcos, I did have one question about length. As a filmmaker, is an hour and a half length, is that just because that's kind of the most you know palatable length for most film going audiences? Or how do you determine that exact question there? There's something going on in an hour and a half. For a film, it's like two hours. 
if you want to make a feature documentary, if you want to make a documentary for television, it's just 50 minutes. But if you want to make a, a documentary that you want to be you know, on Netflix or you want to be on cinemas or film festivals, an hour and a half, it's more or less the time. It has to be the length. It's If you make a two-hour documentary, maybe you can have problems on, on later on, on on some film festivals. And But it's not just because the film festivals or anything. Me as a filmmaker, I think that for a documentary, an hour and a half is the, like the right time. It's, you can't, if it's too long, maybe all the nice things that the people are feeling when watching the documentary, just they, they can go away because maybe it's like too long and, and like people start getting a little bit bored and, okay, I get it. I know where you're going. So just finish the film. So I think an hour and a half is like a, it's a standard thing, but it's not just standard because it's standard. It's because it's the way it works. And when you're in the industry, you understand that it's like the length, the normal length that a documentary, a feature documentary should have. We're going to dig a little bit deeper into the content of the documentary shortly. But before we do that, I noticed in the credits that you felt the need to thank the Michael Jackson estate. How helpful were they to you when you were making this documentary? I did reach to the state and I told them that I was doing this documentary. At the beginning, I asked for music as I wanted to introduce some music on the film. And at the beginning, it was like, okay, they were really helpful. But it was like, it was too difficult. I had to email Sony. Sony had to email the state. The state emailed back to Sony. Sony emailed back to me. And it like took forever. It just, it was... It was months and months and months of work for just the, the workflow was horrible. Like at the point of the post-production phase, I realized or I thought that was, you know, at least that was what I thought, that nothing was going to happen. They were not going to lend me the music. It was just, They were like saying, yes, we love Bruce Sudin and we know love Michael had for Bruce and we're going to help you and we're going to lend you some music for the movie. But the time for like signing a contract and, you know, getting to serious business, um, nothing happened. And it was like, it was taking for too long, too long, too long. So I took the decision to just quit because uh, I had the feeling that I was going nowhere. And I do thank the state because at, at the beginning, at the beginning, they were really helpful. And But something happened, you know, along the way. And it just, it was like the never ending story. It wouldn't close anything. It was... It was a little bit frustrating. So I just said, okay, let's continue without the music. I think we can do the film without the music. And everyone knows Thriller. Everyone, you know, we talk about Billie Jean. Everyone knows what's Billie Jean. So it's okay. So that's why I thanked them, but I didn't actually have had a deal with them. So given the fact that you didn't receive permission to use the music and the multi-tracks are so widely available and used by remixes like Remixed by Nick and Single White Glove. Why didn't you feel confident that you could use this music under the guise of fair use? No, the fair use doesn't exist. That's a legend. I'm not trying to be cocky here, but in the in the levels I work, in the companies that I work, the fair use doesn't exist. If you do a YouTube thing, maybe, what can happen? It's just, you know, they can 
pull it off YouTube. That's it. If you're doing a film for Netflix and and you use material that is not yours, it's copyrighted. I could be in a big trouble, a big problem, and the company that I work for, they could be in a big problem. So there's no other option that, oh, you have the rights or you don't have the rights. There's no free use or anything. Every time you see a film and they use Michael's music or Michael's video and and they talk about the fair use, you know, they can sue you. They can sue you very, very, very big, and you can be in a big problem. So... Using Michael's music without the permission of the Michael Jackson estate was never an option. Uh, you know what's interesting about that? I, I don't want to go down the rabbit hole of the the allegations or anything like that in this in this episode, but I do remember that you know we've talked about Leaving Neverland. You were on our Leaving Neverland roundtable, and when you watch that quote unquote documentary, it does have quite a bit of Michael Jackson music in it. There's, you know, the thriller short film is in it for a period of time Mm -hmm. and there's quite a bit. And, you know, Dan Reed talked about fair use and all of that kind of thing. So you're saying that the Michael Jackson estate could quite easily sue a documentary filmmaker who uses music and footage without permission. I wonder why they haven't sued Dan Reed. I always ask this question to myself. I do wonder why. In a proper documentary that's that you're making money with it, you can't use any image or sound that has copyright, it has, you know, any intellectual property. So I do wonder myself why they didn't sue. There's this fair use thing. It doesn't work everywhere. It's just in the United States and it's just you can always be behind this fair use thing. Uh, So here in Europe, it doesn't work. It doesn't even exist. So you need to be, I do wonder myself why they didn't sue Channel 4 or whatever production company did the the movie Living Neverland. Mm. Marcos, we know, of course, that this isn't your first formal interaction with the Michael Jackson estate because in the biography on your website, it talks about how you were approached by them years Mm -hmm. ago to even be involved in the Escape album, uh, which came Mm -hmm. as a bit of a shock to me when I read that this morning. I was like, there's another little secret (laughs) I didn't know about Marcos. So do you want to talk about that a bit? Yes, that was a huge adventure. Suddenly, one day, I was at home and uh, I got an email from Michael Jackson Estate. I I don't have any relation with the Michael Jackson Estate, so I didn't know where they get my email from. I guess it was from Tony and Laura. They are the people behind the MJ hideout. They did work with the M-State before at the Circus Soleil, you know, thing, and I don't know why they gave them my email. So on the email, the state said, do you want to come to California, to Los Angeles? And do you want to come like tomorrow or like two days? And I was like, yeah, for what? And they didn't say anything. Just if you want to come, just tell us and, and we'll bring you here and we'll explain you when you're here. So I said yes. And they got a ticket for me. And I went from Spain to Los Angeles. I was like the next day there. And it wasn't just me. There were like other people there. There were other fans from different parts of the world. They took us to Jimmy Henson's studio. That's where Michael Jackson recorded We Are the World. So when we got there, LA Raid was there. All the Michael Jackson estate was there. They sat us down in the studio and they started putting us these Michael Jackson demos. And eventually those demos were going to be escape album and so we heard this new michael jackson music and so they played it like a couple of times for us each song and we could make notes and obviously we couldn't record anything and and the next day we had a meeting at sony music so we went to sony music and john brank was there and other people from 
the Michael Jackson estate was there. And so then we had like personal interviews with John Brank and with Michael Jackson estate. And we had a full group debate on about not only the music that we heard the day before, what were the best songs, what song would we like for like for a single. It was like asking to all the fans what we thought about the music we heard and and how would we approach it to the general public. They also talked about the cover, what would it be a painting or should they use a picture that from a photo shoot and, and seeing a photo shoot of Michael. We're like a whole day there, like talking about this project that we didn't even know the name of. Then we went to dinner and we still talked about the, you know, the escape. And, and then like two days later, they booked flights back home. They booked a flight for me back home to Spain. And the next thing I knew, I was getting to Spain. And, and a few weeks later, we had been not working, but helping on the state on, on the new Michael Jackson upcoming escape album. That's pretty incredible. So the songs that you heard in the studio during when they were showing the demos, were they limited to the songs that were on the album or did you get to hear some of those rarer tracks that were considered like Hot Fun in the Summertime and those kind of songs? No, no, we just heard the, the nine songs, the nine demos. We heard the demos and then they put us the new versions of the songs and they asked what opinions do we had for the new versions, if we prefer the new versions or we prefer the demos and those kind of questions, but we didn't hear any other rare stuff that I haven't heard before. Wow. Okay. Were there any voices in the room amongst these prominent fans that were preferencing the demos and Michael's original material, or did it seem to be more in the favor of the remixes? No, it was unanimous. We all preferred the original Michael Jackson demos. Um, the remixes were okay. We, I, I, I get it. I understand it. Um, you know, I'm a Michael Jackson fan, but I also I'm I'm in the you know entertainment industry. I do get it. They they have to do this new mixes for you know for the new people that are, are going to become fans. But me as a fan, we all preferred the original demos rather than the. To be honest, there were there were good mixes there. I I don't remember the mixes because I, I I usually listen to the original ones, but. I remember, like the 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 single one that um, uh, "Love Never Felt So Good." Uh, there was this demo, uh, there's mix that it was okay. I liked it, uh, but we did all prefer the original songs. Yeah, me too. <laughs> and lastly, just on this uh, this topic before we move back into Sonic Fantasy, when you were there in LA meeting with the estate executives, did you or any other fans get a chance to talk to the estate about how they're still selling those fake songs from the first posthumous album <laughs> or whether did it even come up like when you when you're giving them feedback about where the project should go did anyone discuss those those fake songs sure we did of course we did i was you know uh, we were in a position that we, we didn't you know those fake songs were a reality and 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 we were like, okay, there's no cash songs here. We, 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 could, we couldn't be hard with them because we were, you know, in the Sony offices or, or, or the Michael Jackson State offices and, you know, all the Michael Jackson State was there. You couldn't like, just fight. But we did talk about them and, and we say there's no cash songs. That's, you know, there's no fake songs. That's, that's a step forward. And I don't remember if anyone, I don't recall that anyone said 
are you going to still sell them or, or what are you going to do with them? But we just said we do appreciate that in this new album coming out, there's no fake songs. I do remember someone saying that. Do you recall uh, at the time what the estate's response was to that? Probably, yeah, I do remember. It was just they smiled. They smiled and, they, you know, they looked down and, um, okay. They, they didn't, like, answer back properly. It's just like, okay, okay, okay. Don't worry. Don't worry. Something like that. You spoke earlier about the, the troubles of potentially including Michael's music. How would the film had been uh, structured differently had you had those permissions? That, that's a good question. The easy answer is it would be structured the same way. I knew from the beginning, I knew from the beginning that I didn't want to do what, for example, the Spike Lee documentaries. I, I love those documentaries. They're great. But I want to make this clear. I'm a big Spike Lee fan. But these documentaries are structured in a way that are for fans. It's just song by song. I'm a huge Spike fan, so I love all his work, and he's an amazing director. But when he did the Off the Wall documentary or the Bad documentary that I absolutely love, I want to make this clear, I absolutely love, he structures the documentary like song by song. And that's okay. That's okay for me because, again, I am a Michael Jackson fan. I want to know everything about Bad. I want to know everything about Speed Demon. I want to know everything about the way you make me feel. And you know, on and on. But in in my case, for Sonic Fantasy, I want to release this movie worldwide and I want to, you know, take this movie everywhere. I just can't see, you know, someone that's not a Michael Jackson fan or a Bruce Reading fan and tell him about, want to be starting something, Baby Be Mine, Human Nature, Lady in My Life, you know, song by song. Because it's complicated. You know, the fans are going to love it. The rest of the world... Not so much. So uh, I always knew that this documentary had to be, uh, the structure had to be like a story. And without getting very in-depth in every single song of the album. If you want to hear the songs, you can go, you can you can reach the album and you can listen to the songs and that's okay. I just want to tell you the story behind. So if I had the, answering to your question, if I had the rights of the music, probably, probably when they were talking like in different parts of, I actually have a cut addition with music. It's, uh, at the beginning, I thought the, that the Michael Jackson state was going to give me permission. So I kind of exist with the music. But the structure is the same. The music is in the background. That's the only difference. When they're talking about Billie Jean, Billie Jean is in the background. That's it. But the structure of the film doesn't change a, a bit. It's really cool to hear that that version of the film exists. If in the future the estate were to turn around after seeing the version that exists now and says, wow, yes, this is so good. Here, here's the permission. Let's fast track this. Would you then consider the original version with the music to be the main one or the one with Bucks's elements or would you blend them? Oh, uh, no, I'd love to. Uh, you know, if, if the Michael Jackson State watches the movie and they like the movie and they they want to jump uh, in and say, okay, we want to like make this official, we're going to lend you the music. And, and even if they want to be be partners of the of this whole project, I would love to. Man, I wouldn't I wouldn't take out Brad Baxter, but I definitely include the Michael Jackson music. I would, of course, I would. Yeah. 
I actually think that not using Michael's music was something of an advantage. It really put the focus on the story rather than it being perhaps, you know, oversaturated or, or overstimulating the audience by hearing the songs concurrently. How much material did Brad Buxer compose for the film and did you give him any directions? I'm total, I totally agree with that. From the beginning, when I started creating this documentary from the script, I knew that getting the Michael Jackson music was going to be difficult. So I always thought that I'm not going to have the music, but everyone has access to the music. So the important, I, I want to you know, focus on the story. Everyone, it's a click away from hearing Thriller or hearing Beat It or hearing Lady in My Life. But they're not in a click away to hearing, you know, Bruce Udine talking about how they recorded Beat It. So I did want to focus from the beginning in the stories rather than in the music. That that was from the beginning. So again, that was my mentality. And even that I said before that if this state would let me, of course, I would put some Michael Jackson music, but but not not all of the music. I did. I only asked permission for two songs. I didn't ask permissions for the whole album. I did ask permission for, I think it was for Billie Jean, and the other one was Beat It. That, that's it. I didn't ask for anyone, any other song. So, uh, no, I, I, I didn't want to be a documentary with song, 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 after song, song, after song. I, I rather focus on the stories and focus on the people. And, and yes, there's much more material about Brad Baxter. Uh, I, I worked with him. I didn't give him any instructions. Why? Because he's Brad Baxter. Come on. He's one of the best music creators to ever existed. He's, he's, he's a legend. He's, he's amazing as a person and he's amazing as a professional. So I told him about the story and we sat down. I did have some meetings with him before and we got together and we did some rehearsals and we actually had a singer there that sang some of the songs he played. But again, uh, we didn't get the okay from the state because I, I had a lovely vo female singer singing Human Nature and singing Billie Jean in a beautiful, beautiful way. The state said no, and they didn't give us permission for that. They said, we can give you original music. You don't need to put this female singer singing Human Nature or Billie Jean. But then, you know, as I told before, they never gave me any original music. So I didn't have neither the original singer, neither the original music. So I did record a lot of things with Brad Baxter. And, and my only instruction to Brad was, you know, you've worked with Michael for more than 20 years, just try to go back to those days and bring it up to here, bring it to the stage now and, and just feel free. You know, you are Brad Baxter, you're Michael Jackson's musical director. So you do whatever you want in this film. That's what I told him. So Marcos, on a related note with this kind of question of use of archival sound, music, or otherwise, it is a bit noticeable that Quincy Jones, Rod Temperton, Vincent Price, and Michael Jackson's own voices and firsthand perspectives on Thriller are not in the documentary. Did you consider including other interviews they had done as part of the film, or did you somehow kind of face some of the same issues that you did with the music? Uh, well, this is a tough question because I did consider including 
Quincy Jones, I did consider including Rod Temperton, and I did consider including Michael Jackson. We we had conversations with Quincy's people. We had conversations with Rod Temperton's state. Uh, those conversations are confidential and are private, and it's it's nothing to do with me. It's complicated. If there's a backstory that I don't know, but they thought that the best way they could help the film were not to be involved in the film. Let's put it this way. Okay, so you, you had interactions with Quincy Jones to do with the documentary. Was he forthcoming at the beginning and then that changed or was he always resistant to being involved? Oh, we did actually interview Quincy Jones. And at the beginning, everything was like, okay. But at some point, and I want to make this clear, uh, Quincy Jones and, his, um, and their people and their Quincy State, they're, they're amazing people and and I'll be forever thankful because at the beginning they they liked the documentary and they they wanted to be part of it. But again, uh, my conversations with Quincy Jones people are confidential. And at some point, and and again, it's nothing to do with me. It's nothing to do with Bruce. It's nothing to do with Sonic Fantasy. Uh, at some point, they decided to to walk away and and they asked me to to not include. Quincy Jones interview in the film. So, of course, I respected their their wishes, and and that's what I did. And so I thought the story, you, you know, I could tell the story without Quincy Jones. I'd love to have Quincy Jones, of course, and and I loved the interview we did with him. But that again, it's on on a hard drive somewhere, and it will be there for forever, I guess. Yeah. Understood. Yeah, I'm just trying to orient my thinking around why this may have happened. And, and I appreciate you can't talk about the confidential details of the communication. I know, obviously, there was some bad blood between Quinty and the estate after This Is It came out. There was a high-profile lawsuit around the music of Thriller being changed up for that film, which resulted in lawsuits. Yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm just trying to figure out why that resistance may have been there, but yeah, I appreciate that you can't talk more about it. Mm-hmm. Again, going back to, I hate to keep mentioning it, but leaving Neverland, do you think that there may have been some resistance from different groups to the documentary, the way that you'd made it because that, that documentary had come out just, you know, a couple of years prior? Yes, yes, obviously, obviously. It did happen. I could sense it because, um, you know, the Living Neverland documentary was out. Everybody, even, even though I started working on, on Sonic Fantasy way before Living Neverland was released at the Sundance Film Festival. But when I had to start, like, doing the interviews and Living Neverland was there and it was at his peak. So you have to understand, they don't know who I am. I'm just a director from Spain that is making a documentary right now. Right now, at this moment, that Living Neverland, you know, is like a big thing, unfortunately. And everyone is like, okay, so who is this guy? Is this the new Dan Reed? So I'm going to be involved in any kind of documentary that it's, you know, it's going to be. Even the Sweden family, they were not you know, 100% confident of what I was doing. And and I guess I could, like, I, probably 80% of the interviews or the people that were on the movie, 
they were like, okay, so what what are you going to do with this? What is the film about? Are you going to, is there any, you know, smelly stuff there? I, I'm, are you going to change? Are you going to, you know, so I hope now when they see the documentary, I hope now, well, you know, documentary is out, and, you know, everywhere and they, they're able to watch it. They will understand everyone will, you know, involved on the film. They will understand that my original uh, idea, it, it was real is this is a documentary made from love this is a documentary made from admiration and there were like no fishy thing going on there was not there's no second you know story behind it or anything but yes definitely living neverland was a big deal at the moment and 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 it was a, a problem for me because you know there are a lot of people didn't trust me coming back to you spoke earlier a bit about the complexities of attaining rights to play music. One of the things that I found very interesting about the film is that there are snippets of footage from the making of Captain EO and that clip of Michael dancing from the unauthorized interview as it's been bootlegged on VHS for years. And mm-hmm. also snippets of the Seth Riggs vocal warm-up tape. Mm-hmm. And I was curious as to what are the processes of attaining rights for those types of footages which are unofficial? Yeah, okay. So, again, I'm very fortunate enough to have a great team behind me. And I've got a fabulous production team. So... Not all the footage that I used for my first first cut, I got permissions of everything. So I had to, you know, keep up changing and 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 some snippets of stuff we couldn't have. We couldn't get in touch with the original author or you know or the owner of the copyright. So how does it work? They do an incredible job that I I can't do. They just they are like internet hunters. They search, for example, the Captain EO. They look who who's got the right of that, and they like research everywhere. And they find that, for example, Captain EO is from Disney, but Tokyo is not Disney US. It's Disney Tokyo. So they get in touch with Disney Tokyo, and and they reach an agreement. And and sometimes it's just they signed it for free, and you can use that for free. Other times you have to pay. And and that works with everything, with every single picture, photograph, or video there is. My team has got in touch with the owners of the clip. And even sometimes it does happen that the owners of the clip, they don't even know that they own that clip. They totally forgot about it because they were like ages ago and and they, they don't know, okay, is this mine is... Uh, so yes it's yours you can you can there's like some special web pages that you can research and and some special phones you can reach and, and ask for those type of information so that's basically my team i i don't do that um i just i just get an email from someone from my team and it says okay we have the rights for this now so we can use that on the film so i say okay perfect so or sometimes I get the email say we we couldn't reach you know the guy the owner of this picture and you have to take it off and that's something I have to do. Very interesting. As you were filming around Bruce Woodian's place, were you able to get any kind of insight into his tape collection, which he's shown in some other interviews he's done? Yes, I saw his tapes, and but I did have a special request from Bruce Sudin to not film 
his personal tapes. And of, obviously, I did respect that because I, I saw the tapes. Uh, I saw what, what he has there. And I'm sorry I can't answer you, you know, fully this question because uh, I, I think it's confidential. It's private. It's the Sweden's family personal belongings. So, but yes, I did saw all the tapes he had there. And there, there are not a few. There are a lot of tapes there with a lot of stuff that we as Michael Jackson fans w would love to to listen. I can tell you this. I can tell you that at the end of the interview, at the end of the day, actually, uh, Bruce Sudin said to me, okay, Marcus, I want you to sit here. So he sat me in his chair in the position that it was like a specific point of the studio. He said, sit here at his personal studio. And he played Billie Jean in a way that I've never heard Billie Jean before. I've been to Michael Jackson concert. I was in the first row at the Madison Square Garden both both nights. I've never heard Billie Jean the way I heard it on Bruce Sudin's studio, whatever he played on that day to me. It was like the mix was the same. It was the final mix. It wasn't like other mix, but it sounded totally different to, to any Billie Jean I've heard. I can tell you that, and that was amazing. Wow! So, you, I mean, you talk in the in the do documentary about how you know there's nearly 100 mixes that were done of that song in consideration for the Thriller album, and the one that we ended up getting was mix number two. So mm -hmm. maybe you heard mix number 14 or something. Uh, like yeah, that. no, I did ask him. Um, I said, Bruce, I might listen to special mix or something, and he said to me, No, no, you're listening to the final mix of. Billie Jean. So it was the final mix, but right. it was, I don't know what it was, but it, I, I, I was like, wow, it was amazing. Marcos, as amazing as the documentary is, and there's so many wonderful things we can say about it, we did pick up that there's just a couple of little factual errors in there. Maybe it was accidental. But for example, in some of the interviews like Tarrell Jackson, where he was saying that Michael's car caught fire during Beat It's conception. Well, we, we know that that was Billie Jean. And similarly with Greg Fillengain saying that he heard the Beat It demo at Havenhurst in the very early days alongside Wannabe Starting Something and Billie Jean, we also know that Beat It was one of the very last songs to be even written by Michael for the album right at the end of the process. And I guess maybe we could put this down to, you know, memory and just forgetting some key information on the part of some of the interviewees. When you get feedback like that, do you consider changing things later up when you know if there's a factual error or do you just leave it in there because they were the words of the person being interviewed? It's a big debate. Uh, I do understand, and and I had someone in in the team that that was um, like a Michael Jackson encyclopedia. His name is Tony, and he he knows every data about you know everything about Michael and his recordings. And and yes, when the film was finished, the Greg Filigans, the Tyrell, and and even other other one that you didn't mention, um, it was on the table that. Okay, I think they they are not remembering the story the right way. So what would we do? Would, do we have to take it or or do we have to leave it? And and this is a debate not just for Sonic Fantasy, it's just a debate for everything. And and after like hours of an hours of an hours of thinking what's the right thing to do, I, I did talk again to Greg Philigans and I did mention this. He not only said um, he was right, he did remember clearly that. So 
I know I'm the creator of the movie. I can change things, but there's like a red line for me. I won't edit any word from anyone. So if he says that he was there, even though it's just his memory and maybe he's wrong, it's not for me to judge that. The only truth is that I wasn't there and he was there. So I can't decide that. For example, Steve Lukather told me that on the first day of recording Thriller, JR, the battery player, was there. And my documentary guy told me, I think he's wrong. I think he, he JR was not involved on Thriller. So I did ask Steve Lukather, okay, so let me correct you this. I think JR wasn't on the first day of the Thriller recording. And he looked at me and said, yeah, he was. So who am I to, you know, debate something with someone who was actually there? I wasn't actually there. So if the guest tells me something that and he was there and he was involved or he's like Tyrell Jackson, his family, his direct family from, you know, the person we were talking of, uh, even though he's, I'm not 100% sure that he's remembering the, the story right, I don't have the power I don't have the rights to change his words. If he's wrong, the people will, will judge him when they see the film and they'll say, okay, no, you. But that's not my job. Um, my job is to put his words, his memories on the screen. I know that 90% are right and 10% maybe not that right. But okay, we stick with the 90% and we respect that, you know, Even me, I do have memory errors, so that's it. But I'm not going to change anything if I haven't been there. So, Do you think that there is any risk when you're dealing with such a huge topic as the recording of Thriller and with Michael Jackson in general that these stories have become mythologized at this point? And maybe in some ways it's hard to really get down to a fresh truth about them. Do you think that those myths take over what you're trying to do as a filmmaker? Yes, obviously that could happen. It's a bit of both. Making Sonic Fantasy, I did see two things. Uh, one of them is what you're talking about. Yes, there's probably some myths on, on the stories, but I can't tell you if they're myth or not. It's not my it's not my job to judge that. They, they live that story. I didn't live it. So they, they're the ones that they have to tell their truth. But also, as I said before, basically 80% of the story that they're telling me are, it's totally truth. It's what happened. It's what they felt. It's what they, they touched. It was, they saw and people cried when we were doing this documentary, not, not just the people who were being interviewed. I cried. I, I had a crew of eight people and, and they were like crying and, and some interviews and, and that's the magic of the stories And sometimes we tell stories and, and they're not like super 100% fact. They're like 90% fact. And there's like a 10% that's an, an extra like fairy tale part of it that, you know, makes you feel that you, the way they felt when then they were doing that. Maybe the first day they didn't work for like, they didn't work. They, I remember they were telling me that the first day they worked like for 24 hours straight. And, and maybe that was their sensation maybe it was just 
10 hours and and they thought it was like 24 hours straight but but it's okay i get it i understand and there's a film called big fish from, from tim barton which i love and and i think part of the the story uh or the memories is that part is you know when you magnify it when you make it a fairy tale when you it becomes like a legend uh so it's part of the story and and and, and i like it and i'm not the one that that is going to tell them, okay, this is not the way it happened. I, I do respect every word an interview says to me, not not only in Sonic Fantasy, but but in any, any other documentary I make. And and again, for Sonic Fantasy, there was this feeling, This I felt that, but I also felt there's a lot of people that I interviewed that they, they never told the story in front of the camera. It was like the first time, and they were like loving it. They were like, okay, no one has asked us about this before, not in front of a camera and not for a documentary film. Maybe in a dinner on Christmas, someone who cares about it, but, you know, no one cares about me. They care about Michael, they care about Quincy, but they don't care about the other people we were involved. So they they love to tell me this story and they told me their versions of the story. And I love to hear them. So if it's mythology or not, it's not for me to judge. It's it's their story and, and, and I love it how they told it to me. On that front, we should really point out here that in this film, you really have gotten all the studio people and all everyone in Michael Jackson's sphere who really are the ones who should be in the documentaries that the estate has made mm -hmm. as the talking head. So, you know, bravo to you for that. Thank it you. really, you can tell also in those interviews how special it is to each of them to be sharing these stories. And that comes through very strongly and I know made me emotional at certain moments. So great job on that front. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Um, again, this is a Bruce Sudin documentary also. This is like the first. And and Bruce Sudin was a guy that is, he was a studio guy. So I, I needed to make an atmosphere that everyone that talked about in this documentary about Bruce and about his work and about Thriller, they were studio people. And, and I want to create that atmosphere. So yes, thank you. The film is dedicated to your daughter. How did your time with Bruce, and of course considering his recent passing, how did that affect the way you see your own legacy? Oh, that's a question. That's a good question. The thing is, my my wife and I, we have had problems to, to have, you know, kids. And, and it's a long story that it comes from a long time. And so... When I was in LA working on Sonic Fantasy, I got a text message from my wife telling me that she was pregnant. So I was 100% working on Sonic Fantasy at that moment. And um, I don't want to get emotional, but um, I had to spend the next months working in the US and, and my wife was pregnant. And I want to be with her. But I also wanted to do the film and, and I did sacrifice my time with her and living with her, the pregnancy, to work on the film. And not only in the US, but when I came back, I had you know long edit hours and long studios hours working on the film. So when my baby was born, I knew that I wanted 
dedicate the film to my daughter. And talking about the legacy, yes, it's very important, all the jobs that we do when we were living, because that's what we're going to leave to our, you know, kids and and people who love us. And and Bruce is a perfect example. His legacy is is one of the biggest legacies that you can you can ever imagine. And I do feel responsible to do the right work now. So when my daughter, she's, you know, she's 50 or 60 years old and she wants to do a research about his father and what he did for a living and what he did when he was living. And uh, I hope he finds proper stuff and, and, and she feels honored to be my daughter. Yeah, there's something special around my daughter and Sonic Fantasy, the movie. That's why I wanted to dedicate the film to her. And I, she won't probably, because she won't find this out until she's old enough to watch my movies. I guess she won't start like watching my movies when I'm not even here in this world. So I guess she'll find out when <laughs> when I'm already gone. So so I hope she she sees that and makes her smile. Well, that's a very uh, special answer. Thank you. And and also I've got to say that that emotional connection and intensity you're describing there I think really comes through in the film it's an incredibly sentimental and emotional experience watching it especially the last 15 20 minutes of the film when it's reflecting back on Bruce's life and career it's I can certainly feel that come through yeah thanks yes it was important because when I start making this movie Bruce was um still alive and and actually when I started editing the movie Bruce was alive, actually. No, no, I thought I was going to release the movie before he passed away. I didn't even know that he was going to, you know, die. And, and so I found out his about his passing when, when I was working on the movie. That event makes that, you know, obviously you, uh, when the finish, when the movie finishes and you find out that Bruce has passed away, it's, it's like you need to do um, a thought about what's your life and what, what have you done for your life or living and, and, and all the great adventures everyone has had. And, and that reflects very well on, on the end of the movie. Well, I, I hope so. It's not for me to judge, but, but I hope it, it reflects and, and, and makes people understand that we are here for a small amount of time and, and we need to try to leave something for the future generations. On that note, did Bruce ever get to see any cut of the film or even portions of the film before he did die? Yes, he. I sent him um, a portion of the film, like, but it's very small. It was like a ten-minute, twelve-minute portion of the film, and he absolutely loved it. He called me on the phone and he was crying. And he was like, thank you very much. This is going to be amazing. Thank you. Um, I'm forever thankful. And, you know, I was I was crying on the phone. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a big Bruce Houdin fan. So I, I've never dreamed about, you know, Bruce Houdin calling me and, and, and saying thank you for, to me for anything. You know, it was just, I was totally amazed and, yeah, he did see like a twelve-minute first interviews cut of of the film, and he absolutely loved it. But you know, my desire and my wish it would have been that he's could see the whole piece. 
of course. Mm. Yes, absolutely. I can imagine how emotional it must have been to realize that Bruce could not get to see the entire thing. Can you tell us, and this may be hard to talk about, but can you give us some insight into how you heard about Bruce's death and how you handled that at the time? I'm sure it was quite difficult. Yes, because uh, I was actually shopping. I was um, in a shopping mall and, and Gareth, my co-producer and the guy who made the original documentary, uh, the man behind the sound, sent me a text message and it said, you know, Bruce Dean has passed away. And uh, I was shopping and I had to stop shopping, of course. I got the car, I went home and the next day I, I had to go to the studio to, you know, edit Sonic Fantasy, continue with working on Sonic Fantasy. And I called my edition crew and I told them that I need a, I need a week off because I need to understand and assimilate what had just happened. And, and I was really, really, really sad. I said everyone, not, you know, everyone that we, everyone that loves Michael or Bruce or understands Bruce's work with Michael. You know, we all loved Bruce Redeen. So it was really tough, and um, I did send a message to Bruce's family, and um, I was deeply saddened and, and sorry. And and I, I'm actually very sad to till this day that he never, you know, first kiss. I didn't Bruce. I think he would have lived more, and and secondly, I, w- I would have loved he, you know, he could watch the film. But yeah, it was it was a really sad moment. Yeah, absolutely. I would actually, I would like to point out to one really lovely thing you do in the film, Marcos, is you really kind of present Bruce as almost this superhero with this idea of the sonic fantasy and being able to see the music as colors. And there's this lovely narrative going through the whole film of him kind of coming in at the last minute to, you know, save the album, which is quite magical and, and you know, made me emotional. And I'm sure that really resonated with his family. So I know that if he had been able to see the full film, he would have loved it. Um, and I'm sure his family appreciates it so much. Now, coming back to the finished film, can you speak at all to us about how it's gone in terms of trying to get it screened, promoted, distributed, etc.? Have you faced any resistance that has been explicitly or implicitly, in your view, due to opinions around Leaving Neverland? Yes. The short answer is yes. Before the documentary was shot, I tried to talk with the distribution companies before I start even shooting. I do meetings with them and I say to them, okay, this is what I'm doing now. This is going to be my next movie. And this is, you know, this is the storyline. This is what's going to happen. And my first meetings that I had, um, again, Living Neverland was big at that moment. And, you know, everyone had watched it. And and everyone's like saying, are you sure you want to do this? with Michael Jackson topic. And I was, yes, yes. But there was a lot of people that they're not fans and and, and, and that they were in the industry that they were like, yeah, yeah, we want to be part of this. We want to help you. We want to, you know, distribute this. We want to. So at the beginning, yes, 
But when living Neverland was just like flying away and, and, and at the same time, I was starting to have my first interviews. Uh, I did send some interviews to them and they, I did some previews and, and they saw some parts of the film and like they totally forgot about that issue. And the people that are on board, they are on board and, and they love the film and they have nothing against it. And, and, and they believe on the film, they believe in they're working hard so that the film can be distributed worldwide. And, and this is, this is not something that I think is going to happen. This is something I'm, I'm pretty sure is going to happen. So I won't be happy if the film is not worldwide on Netflix or Amazon or any other platform because my other movies are there and and I have reached that goal and I think Sonic Fantasy is one of my best movies you know till now and and I want that movie to be everywhere I had some resistance at the beginning but that happened a long time ago uh, uh, it doesn't happen anymore well, that's great. I'm glad that it's changing at this point. Marcos, just one last question related to Quincy and what we've just been discussing. And first of all, so glad that, you know, the kind of temperature is changing and we very much want to see your film everywhere. With Quincy, and this is also mindful of the fact that you've had these confidential conversations you can't talk about, but do you think that Quincy may have pulled out because of leaving Neverland or because of issues with the estate. We did see some things such as him changing his MJ tribute concert, for example, uh, changing the advertising. Can you speak to that at all? I don't know. Uh, sincerely, I, I, I don't know. I, I can't answer you. I don't want to speculate on this because I don't think that it has nothing to do with leaving Neverland. I don't think it has nothing to do with that. I think it's much more complicated than that. That's what I can say. And I did have conversations with Quincy's people, but uh, again, those conversations are confidential. And But they didn't tell me everything. They said, now we can't be on this documentary. And and I, I, did, I do respect their their wishes, but I don't think it has to do anything with Living Neverland. So um, similarly to what Elise was just asking you about Quincy, when your website first launched, it named people like Glenn Ballard, Saida Garrett, and some others as being in as being in the film as well. Were you able to secure interviews with those people at, at that time for the documentary? Well, Glenn Ballard was never on the website. Oh, okay. Uh, Saida Garrett, yes, we did interview Saida Garrett. I can tell you my conversations with Sadie Garrett are also confidential. She was great. I love her. She's an amazing woman, but she pulled out of the, the, of the documentary. And I can tell you that has nothing to do with Living Neverland. She absolutely loves Michael. She She's in love with Michael and she believes in Michael and she trusts Michael. And, and she was one of my best interviews. And I was... Really, really, really saddened that she wanted to pull off the interview. It wasn't her decision. She called me and she, well, she didn't call me. She emailed me and, and she explained to me that something had, had happened and she couldn't be on the film. So I had to take her off also. But nothing to do with Living Neverland. If they were on the website, it's because they were interviewed if they were not on the website, they were not interviewed. So 
if the people that are, are on documentary are not that they were on the website before and they're not in the in the documentary, it's because they in some way or on another they 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 wanted to be out of the film. Thank you so much for all of that, Marcos. We want to get into some fun chat here. Um, and so we have seen from photos that you've shared that you are not so different from the rest of us. So <laughs> right now we kind of want to jump into some of the fandom world. And so would it really be fair to say that before you were a filmmaker, that you were a Michael mega fan? And can you tell us a little bit about kind of really when you first got into Michael? Jackson and what it was about his music that you connected with? Well, the first time, first time was, uh, well, as I told you before, I was uh, thrillerist all around my house because my older sister, she played thriller all day through. And But everything changed around the history era, even Blood and the Dance Floor. I remember watching the Ghost short film and I was like totally amazed and, and I became a Michael Jackson you know, freak. But at the at that time, I was I was underage. I, in Spain, you need to be eighteen, so I, I couldn't you know get an airplane and go anywhere. It was just so. When I was eighteen, the next thing that happened was the Michael Jackson and Friends concert in Munich, Germany. So I got a ticket and I flew there. And my parents thought that you know he'll he'll he's obsessed with michael and so he, that's gonna end when he sees michael and <laughs> and okay he'll he'll see it and that's okay a tick and that, that's it so i went to the michael jackson uh and friends concert and i saw michael for the first time and that was year 1999 in munich and oh my god that was amazing and i got very obsessed every day and so from that day till 2009 till um i was you know, every everything Michael did, I traveled. You know, I, I didn't care if I didn't have money or anything. I just traveled around the world following Michael. And I, I traveled to see Michael like everywhere around the world. Every single news that he was in a place, I, I got a plane and I went there. And I, the first time I talked to him and I took a picture with him, it was a uh, year 2001. I think it was March he was in the, he was in the Oxford conferences. I booked a room at his hotel, the the Lanesborough Hotel. I didn't wear any Michael Jackson T-shirt or anything. I was uh, I was this young, nineteen year old boy, but trying to dress fancy or nice to get in this you know very expensive hotel. That till this day I didn't know I don't know how I paid it, but. I knew Michael was on the third floor of the hotel and I went to the third floor of the hotel and he left. He was uh, doing the Oxford conference. So I waited till he came back and I waited beside the elevator for like four or five hours. And, and then he came back, uh, the door opened up from the elevator and all the security people were there, all the you know, entourage people were there and uh, Michael came out. And I was just, um, I, I, I said to him, thank you for your music. Cause I knew, I knew that I didn't, I, I wasn't going to have a, a chat with him. I knew that he was just going to pass through and that's it. And I, I thought that was my only opportunity in my whole life to talk to Michael Jackson. So I just said, you know, go straight forward to what you want to say. And, and I want to say thank you for your music. So 
he passed through and I said, Michael, thank you for your music. And, and he suddenly stopped and he turned around and he came to me and we started talking and that was great. And, and, and I told him that I was staying at the hotel. So uh, he said to meet him uh, the next day, uh, the hotel, the same place, same time. So the next day I was there and, and Michael was there and his people were there also. We started talking and, and we had a little conversation and making a long story short, this happened for um, years and years and years and years and years until 2009. Uh, that the last time I saw Michael was at the same hotel, also on March, and it was after the This Is It um, announcement. That's uh, absolutely incredible. Wow. <laughs> I'm really interested to hear some of the kinds of things that you got to talk to Michael about. What were some of your conversations about? Well, they, they were not deep conversations. Remember, every time I, I was with Michael, uh, we, we, it was not for a long period. Uh, uh, maybe it was like from 10 seconds to, I don't know, 10 minutes. Yeah, we didn't have like deep conversations about life. And it was basically what was happening at that moment. Uh, for, I remember the first conversation that I had with him it was before invincible album came out and i was like saying to michael uh michael i can't wait to hear your new music and he was like oh you're gonna love it it's great i'm still working on the studio and i was like is it gonna take much longer um because i can't wait and he was yeah um it's basically finished or i don't remember but we when we talked when i had the opportunity to talk about michael we we did talk about things that were happening at that moment in life not only on Michael, but on life. For example, I remember once we were talking about the new Harry Potter movie came out. I don't know. I don't remember which which one came out, but it was like a Harry Potter movie. And he, and he told me, have you seen the new Harry Potter movie? And, and I, I said, no, Michael, I haven't seen it yet. And he was like, I want to be on a Harry Potter movie. And he told me that he called R Rowling, the, the, the author of Harry Potter, and, and told her, that he wanted to be in a Harry Potter movie. And she said to Michael, I'm sorry, Michael, but only British actors can be on, on Harry Potter movies because that's one of the things that I said to Warner Bros. when they, I signed the contract with them, only British actors, and you're American, so you can't, you can't be in the movie. And Michael was really upset with that, and he told me about it, and it was like, I want to be there, and I can't be because I'm American, but I want to be in the Harry Potter movie. So this kind of stuff, it was very superficial talking, but it was great. It was Michael Jackson, and it was lovely. I, I, I try to remember every, every moment because uh, it's amazing, you know. Marcos, can you tell us a bit more about attending the 30th anniversary celebration? And I'm always keen to hear from people that were there how it compared to the television edit. Mm. Okay, so I was on the 30th anniversary and I was fortunate enough that Michael gave us, you know, uh, to the fans. Well, he didn't give us. He, um, he made us so we could reach to these tickets that, uh, that were in first row. So I was in first row for, the both, for both concerts. For me, it was amazing because you've got Michael Jackson on the first row when you're watching the concert and you're totally amazed. You know, you've got this guy dancing Billie Jean and, you know, he's like a few feet away from you. It's, it's like your idol. So you're totally mesmerized of everything that's happening at that moment. So... 
I remember coming out of the both nights at the Madison Square Garden saying, this is the best experience in my life. It was amazing. There was, there is nothing you can, you, you can't top that. So months later, uh, I saw the edit on They Made It. And I don't know what it is. Uh, it's something to do with the edit. And, and maybe that I wasn't so hyped because I wasn't in first row now. And I was at, you know, at my house watching it. And it didn't feel the same. So for me, definitely, it was much better the experience, you know, in first row at Madison Square Garden that on on watching it on television. I, I didn't like the edit, too much audience there, too much, you know, I wanted to see more Michael. It was definitely better. I can tell you that it was much, much better life than the television version. And and obviously during this whole period of time, Marcos, that you were following Ma- Michael around, uh, he was you know going through a pretty difficult time though you know like I mean we're not we're not talking about Michael Jackson of the Sonic fantasy thriller era we're talking about somebody who was struggling heavily with painkiller dependency he was being accused of child molestation you know he he was on a bit of a downward spiral following him around to all these different locations did you get a sense of the amount of pressure that he was under and how difficult his circumstances were during that time to be honest uh no remember um i was i i am a michael jackson fan and and uh, i was young i was totally starstruck you know he was michael jackson he was the biggest star in the world and he was my idol and so every time i saw michael and every time i talked to michael um it was everything was perfect. I, I didn't get the sense that something wrong was happening, even though, you know, during the trial era, during I, I talked to Michael and I was I was there and I talked to him and I was like, wow, everything's great. Well, not everything's great, but you know, I was amazed because it's Michael Jackson. I was totally starstruck. But when I got home again and and and, and rewatched those images again on on the internet or on the news, there was something there that I was I was like, there's something going wrong. There's something that's not working, and but I don't get what. I'm not talking about the trial because that was obvious, but there was other things that I didn't catch, I didn't get, and I, I didn't see at that moment. There was definitely something going on and and i didn't get it on that uh, at that period at that moment on um, you know life you d- i didn't get it live i didn't when i was there I, I couldn't see it coming there were other people that they did i remember some friends of mine that they were in the same situation as me and they were big michael jackson fans and they after meeting michael we all, always had this like chat saying about how great it was and how fun it was and and some of they, I remember Talia. Talia, uh, you all know Talia. She wrote an amazing book a year ago, and and she was a great Michael Jackson follower. And and I remember talking one day to her. I don't know. We were in Las Vegas. I don't remember. I don't remember. And and she told me there's something wrong. There's something going that we don't know what it is. And and I was saying to Talia, uh, don't worry. It's just Michael Jackson. You know, it's there's always something going on. But I guess I didn't realize I was too much starstruck. I was like too much amazed that 
that was talking or being with Michael Jackson to realize what was really happening. Yeah. Wow. Wow. And just and just so listeners, our, our listeners at the MJ cast can get a, a sense of the scale of, you know, how many times you'd actually seen Michael and how long you, quote unquote, followed him around for, like how many years was this period and how many times do you think you physically saw Michael? Oh, well, uh, it wasn't that much. It was, okay. well, in years, in years, yes, it is. Uh, it was the first time I saw Michael. The first time I talked to Michael, it was in 2001, in March, on the Oxford speeches. But from there to 2009, like maybe three or four times every year, I had the chance to to see Michael, to talk to him, to be with Michael. Because I followed everywhere. I went to Berlin. I went to London. I went to New York. I went to Los Angeles. I went to Las Vegas. I went to Paris. I went... Everywhere he was, I tried to be there and I I managed to sneak in and always being very respectful, uh, not trying to, you know, be in, in his private moments, obviously. But he he when he saw me and, and saw my friends, they he he knew who we are, who we were, and, and, and he so he, he was very kind enough to talk to us and, and so Every now and then we had the opportunity to to chat a little bit with Michael. So I'm one of the fortunate guys, but, you know, there's a lot of people that met Michael and, and talked to Michael much more than me. I'm not one of, I'm not even one of top 10, you know, but, but yeah, I was, I was there for, you know, since 2001 for, you know, till 2009. The last time I saw Michael was, yeah, after the press conference. And, and I had the opportunity to chat with him. And I, I was with another fan. Her name is um, Joanna. But not, not not the Joanna, not the French Joanna you're thinking. It's not another Joanna. She's from, she, she's a British girl. She lives in the United States now. Her, we call her Jojo. It was just Jojo, Michael, and me, and hotel. And, and we had a very nice chat about the upcoming concerts, the This Is It uh, concerts. And, and it was great. I was totally in love with the man. He was he was kind. He was, I was a fan. He didn't have to treat me in any way because I was just a fan. But he, he was very kind, not just with me, but with all the fans that had the opportunity to reach him and, and that we are, were followers and, and we like had the chance to, to be with him, yeah. Well, firstly, Marcos, for someone who you say you haven't seen Michael that many times, but you, you seem to have seen him a hell of a lot more times than I have. Uh, <laughs> the only time I saw him was at that uh, O2 press conference from a distance. I mean, I could have chucked a tennis ball and hit him in the head, but that <laughs> wouldn't have been nice, would it? <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to ask you a couple of things. Firstly, when was the last time you spoke to Michael and, and what was that conversation, if you don't mind sharing? I don't mind sharing. It was the day after the press conference for the This Is It concerts. It was at the same hotel. It was exactly at the same date, at the same uh, month, at the same place I saw. And I talked to Michael. I, I talked to Michael for the first time because I saw him before in concerts, but I never talked wow. to him. So it was like March 2009, and he was coming from the theater he had seen oliver and i was waiting for him at the hotel with this fan called 
Jojo. So Michael came back to the hotel and we were waiting at the third floor of the Lanesboro Hotel. And he came out of the elevator and Jojo and I were there. And when he saw us, he came directly to us and he was astonishing. He was, he was, I've never seen him this way. And he was like, he started asking us how, what, what do we think about the concerts and uh, what were the reactions uh, among the fans about the concerts? You know, remember at that time, it just was, it was 10 concerts. It wasn't the 50 concerts. And we were like, yeah, it was going to be great. And he was, to be honest, he was, you know, he was on it. He was like, yeah, yeah I'm going to, uh, you know, I'm going to kill it. I'm I'm looking forward. I, I want Prince and Paris were there. There were two little kids and I want Prince and Paris to see me perform. And mainly he asked us, what what are the feelings among the fans about those concerts? And at that moment, at that moment, we didn't have all the information we have now. But at that moment, it was something huge. It was big. It was positive. And we were like, yes, Michael, you know, this is going to be great. And he was, yeah, yeah, yeah. So at the end of the conversation, um, somehow I knew at that conversation, that was the last time I was talking to Michael, not because something was going to happen to him or something was going to happen to me, but for the last 10 years that I had the chance to talk to Michael, to be with Michael, he was not on the top of the game. He was the Michael Jackson of the trial, the Michael Jackson of, you know, whatever. But now he was again, you know, he was again on the top of the game. He was the Michael Jackson we all remember from, you know, history, from dangerous, from, from bad, because he was, you know, making this huge press conference and he was coming back. So I had the sense, I had the feeling that I had been very lucky for the past 10 years but that luckiness, it was going to fly away. And that was the last time I was talking to Michael. But it was okay for me because I did appreciate all the time I spent with Michael before. So I was like, it's okay. This is the last time I talked to Michael. So I'm just going to record every single second of it. So uh, at the end of the conversation, he hugged Jojo and then he hugged me. And I tried to keep you know this hug in my mind. And then he left to, he went to his room and Jojo and I were going out and suddenly Michael came out again from his room and he said, remember, I'll always love you. And I I said, Michael, we love you too. And he said, good night. And he closed the door. So I, I was, we were going back to our room and I was saying to Jojo, Jojo, this is the last time I, I'm, I'm talking to Michael and it's been great. It's been perfect. He hugged me. He said he's, he loved us and he said good night to us. And she was saying to me, oh, don't be stupid. It's not the last time you're talking to Michael. And I go, yeah, it is, but I'm okay. I'm fine with it. Um, he's going to be, again, the biggest superstar in the world and it's going to be okay. And it's okay. Well, we all know what happened later, you know, on June. So um, I wasn't prepared for what was happening, but I, I, in a way, I, I, I did know that was the last time I was talking to Michael. So I like I kept it. I kept every single word of that conversation in my brain. And 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 yes, we talked about the kids. I mean, Prince in Paris. And we talked about London. 
mainly we talked about the concerts and that he was prepared and that he was looking forward and that's it. It was like a six, seven minutes conversation, but it was great. Wow. I just want to circle back to something that you mentioned earlier in the show. You mentioned about flying around to different locations to see Michael and you included the trial in that. Now, you said you flew into Santa Barbara. Now, that sort of piqued my interest because I personally have flown out of Santa Barbara once as well in a light aircraft to go and view Neverland from the air. I just wanted to ask you about how you ended up flying into Santa Barbara and how you got from there to the courtroom at Santa Maria and just that whole situation, how you managed the logistics of Mm. going over for the trial all the time. Okay, uh, what I meant, I fly to Santa Barbara. Um, maybe I translated wrong from my Spanish. I didn't actually fly to Santa Barbara. I, I flew to to Los Angeles. Then I got a car, right, and I drove to to Santa Barbara country, and then it's Santa Maria is close to there. So I didn't fly to Santa Barbara. I went. I fly to Los Angeles. And yes, I, I I went a couple of times to the um, to the trial, and, and I just I just went with my friends, and we went to Santa Maria Court, and we we booked a hotel there in Santa Maria, and every day we had to wake up at six a.m. in the morning, and at six thirty we were in courtroom, and we were outside the courtroom. So eventually, two officers will come out the courtroom with some tickets you know like when you play bingo some tickets so they gave us tickets to everyone we were outside and they would do a bingo and so if you were lucky you got inside the courtroom if you were not lucky you stayed outside a couple of times i i went into the courtroom and sometimes i had to be outside it was okay so that's how it worked so with that in mind, you, you booked your hotel nearby and you uh, went to the court most, if not every day. Now, I've been to that court as well just to have a look around and it's quite a small area. I can't imagine how it was with all the fences and the TV trucks and the media set up there as well. Did you get to speak to Michael or any of the Jacksons or anyone that was involved in the case while you were in Santa Maria at all? Yes, I spoke to Michael, I spoke to the Jacksons, I spoke to Janet. Yes, it's a small place and it was like a circus. Um, I, I don't remember exactly who was first, but I remember one time being the courthouse has like a, a patio inside it and, and there was a way to access inside the, the patio, even though you were not in the courtroom, even, even though you, you couldn't just like be inside the courtroom. You could go inside the courtroom, but in the patio inside the building. So I did go sometimes to that patio. And and, and I remember once uh, Janet was there on the patio. I managed to talk to her, but it was like, uh, Janet, we are here because we support your brother. And she was, oh, thank you very much. It was not, not longer. It was that just a basic conversation. The same happened with the Jacksons. And I met them at the patio and with Michael every time, every day, if we, if you were not in the courtroom and you were outside the courtroom, you knew at what time this session of the day ended. So you, we drove back to Neverland because Michael was nearly every day. He went back to his home. So we were like waiting for him in Neverland. So 
not all of the days, but a lot of the days, Michael pulled out his window one and, and talked to us. And, and that's how we managed to talk with Michael during those days. I remember Michael, I'll never forget Michael saying to, to my friend and to me, how much did he appreciate that we were there? Not, not, not me and my friend, he meant all of the fans. So he was, I truly appreciate all of the fans of you, you know, traveling to Santa Maria and, and being here and, and being outside the courtroom and being inside the courtroom. I realized at that point how lonely was Michael and, and how he much needed us to be there. So I stayed for the whole trial, basically, and, 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 and that's it. Okay, so you could see firsthand Michael at the start of the trial Michael at the end of the trial, and obviously you met him in 2001 in Oxford. So you'd seen Michael's demeanor and how he was in the years leading up to the trial as well. What did you notice specifically about his demeanor, his mood, if you like, you know, just his general well-being? What did you personally observe during that time? Um, I, I wasn't close enough to to see any differences. Every time I, I was with Michael, I saw him the same way as, as as he was. He was just Michael. I didn't see anything else. I just this is Michael um, and he's being he's smiling to me. He's talking to me. I never saw him sad. I don't recall him sad. I don't remember him being sad. I always remember Michael smiling, even in his worst moments. And when I mean worst moments, I mean on the trial. I remember Michael smiling, um, laughing. I also remember Michael, I've seen images of Michael shouting and being angry with some people from the press. But that was with people from the press, not with fans. And he always smiled to, to the fans. He always was happy with us. And so... I, I, to be honest, I didn't see anything wrong. I just saw a normal guy called Michael Jackson and, and he was in a tough time. But with us, he was always smiling. He was being grateful and, and he was being very, very nice. And, and now that the time has passed and I know more information, much more information that I knew at the moment. I do appreciate the effort that Michael did to make us think that everything was okay. Because obviously it wasn't okay, but we thought it was because Michael like made us think that way. Uh, last question on the trial era then, Marcos. Could you just tell us which witnesses you saw and or spoke to during your time in Santa Maria? And uh, what you heard them say if you made it into into the courtroom at any stage? Yes, I made it into the courtroom. I, I didn't I didn't talk to any witness. Uh, that was that was not possible. I did go into the courtroom with I remember Neverland workers that people that worked in Neverland. That that was the time I I think Arabito's mother was there also on the days I was there. So uh, to be honest, uh, there was a lot of information at that time and not just what was happening inside the courtroom, but what we were reading outside the courtroom when we were, uh, we were coming out and there was like news. And so I can't, I remember work, workers from Neverland talking about 
you know, how great was Michael. That's it. Um, no, nothing, nothing that we don't know. That's, that's what I remember. And to be honest, um, most of the time I was looking at Michael <laughs> and uh, I couldn't, I couldn't just sit there and hear. I was like watching Michael and how he was and that's it. I'm I'm sorry I can't give you more information about the trial. No, that's okay. But as I said to you, it was a lot of a lot of things were happening at that time, and and it was very emotional for the fans because we were we didn't know that we were in Santa Maria at that time, and and we didn't know if Michael was going to go to jail or not. We we believed in Michael. We knew he was innocent, but. You know, you don't know what's going to happen. So a lot of emotions happening at that moment. It's, it's been like 15 years or more, 16 or 17 years ago. And and I only I tried to remember only the, um, when I say positive, there, there was nothing positive about the trial. But when I say positive, I remember there were also some break times that we, my friends and I, we were, you know, talking to Michael or we were, you know, just hanging around and we went to have dinner and, you know. Cool. Okay. So um, just one more question about your experiences with the trial, Marcos. Were you in a position to observe Michael's reactions to the testimony that was laid out in court? Were you able to see his reactions? No, you could only see his, because we were in the back, so we only saw his hair. We, sometimes we, you see his like his head moving and saying no, but you, you couldn't see his face. It just basically said, and we only could see because Michael was the first one to get out of the court when the session ended. So you could see well, that, that was the only time you could see Michael's face. So he would stand up and he was getting out of the court. You saw his face. And yes, those days you could see Michael was sad. When he was on court, he was really, 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 really sad. And that's the only time we could see his face on the court. <laughs> so, Marcos, thank you so much for taking us on this pretty incredible journey of you being a filmmaker and a mega fan. It's it's remarkable to hear all your stories. And we'd like to circle back to Sonic Fantasy for a moment before we wrap up and to hear just a bit about your immediate plans for the film. If, for example, you are going to be touring festival circuits and also how festivals have been receiving the film so far. Um, and also if you have any feelers out at the moment to, in terms of knowing which streaming service might eventually carry the film, can you speak to any of that? Yes. At the moment we're in the stage that we're presenting the film to specific film festivals. And for the moment, the feedback we have is great. Remember, this is not fan festivals or this is not a convention or MJ Music Day. This is festivals that they put documentaries about anything. Not just music, not obviously not just Bruce Lee or Michael. So the reactions are great. For the moment, every film festival we've presented the film, every film festival has wanted the film. So we are in a position that we had to say no to some film festivals. But we have said yes to most of them. Until this day, there's much more film festivals coming that will be announced in the next days or next months. And this is going to be like till August or September. Uh, and after that, probably the film will go, will be in cinemas on 
film theaters, some cinemas, we call them here in Spain. But basically for a week or two, not in the US, I guess, it would be Europe, I think. And after that, yes, the film will be on, on streaming services. Which one? I don't know. Maybe Netflix, maybe Amazon. Hope it's not HBO. <laughs> but in whatever <laughs> streaming platform it's going to be, it's going to be worldwide. And that will happen probably at the end of this year. So first, stage, film festivals, second, cinemas, and then film platforms or online platforms. Well, that's great. Well, we definitely hope that we can all watch it in some easily accessible way in the near future. So we'll have our fingers crossed for that. Now, there is a question that we like to wrap up with. And this is a question that we ask all of our special guests. And you will have a great perspective on this in particular as someone who is not only personally a fan, but a professional filmmaker. And that is Marcos Cabota. How should Michael be remembered? It's a good, but it's a difficult question. Michael should be remembered as the human being that changed the way we conceive art, we conceive music, we see music videos, and how we understand what's an artist. He changed everything for good. That is something we need to understand. It's not easy to understand, but we need to understand. He changed everything in entertainment business for good. And we not just need to understand it, but we need to explore it. And we need to pass this information to the next generations. Call it podcast, call it movie, call it book, I don't know, whatever, in whatever way. But we need to, our job here is to understand, explore Michael and leave this information for the next generations because he was the person that changed everything in music business and entertainment industry. Well, that's a great answer, and we certainly couldn't agree more and are also invested in trying to do as much as we can to support that legacy. And Marcus, we thank you for all you have done to support both his and Bruce Swedeen's legacy in your film. So thank you so much. Marcos, after your work here on Sonic Fantasy and all the other work that you've done with Michael Jackson, people might want to connect with you. How can they best connect with you, either via socials or otherwise? my twitter account my facebook or my um, instagram but i'm more active in my twitter account i try to follow everyone so they can text me if they want so yeah i think twitter is the best place so now that i put more michael jackson fans following me and now i start i only tweet in english so they understand me <laughs> so yes this is the account they need to follow if they want to get in touch or understand or know what's my my, my next move with the film. Yes. Uh, Marcos, what's your Twitter handle? Oh, it's Marcos Cabota. Thank you, Marcos, for, uh, for joining us today on the show. It's been a pleasure to have you. And uh, we'll just go around the table now. We'll start with John Cameron. How can our listeners connect with you? 
Uh, I'm on Twitter. My username is Cameron underscore John. If you'd like to listen to my podcast, JC's Musicology, it's available on just about every podcast platform. The next episode will be on Michael Jackson's Bad Album. Uh, I'm conscious that I uh, I said this on the last time I was on the MJ cast four months ago, but I can assure you it's coming. <laughs> Very excited about that, John. It's going to be great. <laughs> And, uh, of course, it's Studio San Diego there. We have the wonderful Elise. How can people connect with you? The best way to follow me and f- communicate with me is through the MJ Cast accounts across social media. You can also find me at Elise Capron on most platforms, although best to go through the MJ Cast account. Thank you very much. And, of course, up there in Studio Brisbane, Jamin. Hello. Yes, uh, the MJ Cast socials at the MJ Cast on all of our, you know, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram is the best way to find me. Uh, I also am at my personal account, which is just at Jamin Ball on Twitter. Excellent. Thank you very much. And uh, I am Charlie W Carter on Twitter and Instagram. And uh, if you feel like looking at photos of airplanes, there's also Alpha Charlie photos on uh, <laughs> on Instagram as well. And there is an aerial photo of Neverland, so we'll get that one in there. Uh, anyway, thank you very much for, for joining us today once again, Marcos, and uh, I'll leave the wrap-up to Jamin and Elise. Oh, well, it's just been such a pleasure. Again, thank you so much, Marcos, for coming on the MJ cast. We've wanted for a very long time to be able to speak with you in detail about your you know, your travels and, and following Michael Jackson, but now also being able to release a uh, an incredible 90-minute documentary on Bruce Swedean and the Thriller album and Michael Jackson and that whole amazing era, which was just such a joy to watch. And I hope fans around the world are able to watch it as soon as possible as well. Brilliant, brilliant experience uh, watching that documentary. It was so much fun. And uh, Elise, any final thoughts? No, just thank you again, Marco, so much. And thanks to the whole team for coming together to do this. I definitely encourage all fans to watch the film. It really is a love letter to Bruce and his love letter, I think, to the Thriller album. Mm. And I promise you will enjoy it. Thank you very much. I'm a, a huge MJ Cast fan. Uh, I try to listen to all your episodes and, and I love them. So uh, thanks to you for the job you're doing and, and on Michael's legacy. I truly appreciate and love your work. So thank you very much. It's an honor to be here. Well, thank you, Marcos. And we're going to come visit you in the Canary Islands. <laughs> 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 we're all going on holiday. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>